Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.
Thanks for reading, Izzy. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you this morning. Uh, if you don't know who I am, I'm Simon. Uh, people call me Jacko around here, uh, lead pastor of City Light Church North Adelaide. It's good to be uh, with you this morning. And if you're new to us, welcome. It's great to have you here this morning. I look forward to meeting you over some sandwiches in the hall after our gathering today. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but I haven't been preaching for a little while. Um, you might have been going, yeah, it's been great. Yeah. Finally got to lunch on time with my family each week. It's been really nice because, um, no, um, I've enjoyed the rest. Um, it's nice to be back among you in this way. Um, I love being here teaching God's Word. It's one of my happy places. Um, and uh, I look forward to opening up this part of God's Word with you this morning. Revelation 17, 18, 19 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, many of you know at City Light Church North Adelaide, we spare no expense on pretty much anything. Um, you know, we don't have gas, you know, we spare no expense on gas and hot water and things like that. No. So we spare no expense on props. Um, and so I've gone to a lot of trouble to create a prop this morning. Um, and I've cut it really nicely and that sort of stuff. But it's all about getting you guys to talk amongst yourselves really briefly before we open up God's Word together. I want to offer you um, three choices this morning, okay? And you're going to talk about these with the people next to you. Um, you've got three choices. I'm going to give you three Ps. And you have to choose one of these three things that you can only have one of them kind of for the rest of your life. Which one is it going to be? Okay? Here's my prop. Don't, I shouldn't have done that. I could have ripped it. Um, three Ps. Pleasure. Would you choose pleasure for the rest of your life? Or profit? Or popularity? Pleasure, profit, or popularity? Which will you have? You can have one for the rest of your life, but only one? What are you going to go for? Pleasure, profit, popularity. I'm going to put it down in a minute. I won't stand here for the whole time. So um, have a quick chat to the person next to you. What are you going to go? Pleasure, profit, popularity. What would you want for the rest of your life? Go for it. A few minutes conversation. Okay, everyone, I'll get your attention again. <clears throat> Clearly, my prop worked really well. Got you chatting. Um, all right, really quickly, um, no judgment against anyone here um, on what you choose. Pleasure. Put your hand up if you want pleasure. Yeah, that's right. Got some pretty philosophical thoughts down here. We won't go to that. Anyway, um, profit. Who wants profit? Yes, look at that. Everyone wants cash. Cash. Give me the cash. No. <laughs> Sorry, it's a bit simplistic. Maybe not. Uh, popularity. Oh, yes. Good on you, guys. Yeah. Everyone wants to be popular. Very good. Everyone wanted to put up their hand for that. No, I'm just joking. Um, should we pray as we come to God's Word? Um, and again, like I say, when we do these things, it may or may not have anything to do with what we're thinking about this morning. Um, we'll see how we go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for all the good things you give us. Oh, Lord, we thank you and praise you, uh, Father, for the air that's in our lungs that means we're alive for the way that you providentially are sustaining our bodies and our hearts are beating and our minds are active. And, and so we pray, Father, that with these bodies that you've given us, Father, and with the, the minds you've given us, the ears you've carved out in our heads, Father, that we would hear you this morning and we would think of you as we now come to your word and hear you speak to us. Father, enliven us this morning by your spirit. Father, thank you that we meet uh, 
in the midst of that glorious reality that on that glorious day Jesus walked out of the grave and that we through faith in Jesus too will live forever in Christ. And we pray with thanks as well that it's not all about us, that you are at work in and through us, yet not I, but Christ in us. And so we pray, Father, that you just remind us of the joy of eternal life this morning, the wonder of knowing you and more than that, being known by you. And Father, help us to hear you speak to us this morning and respond with your Spirit's help to live like Jesus and to love like Jesus and together to long for that great and glorious day when we will see you and enjoy you forever. We need you this morning, Lord. I pray you'd help us. Speak to us, Lord. We need you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I'm guessing it was about 10 years ago, ago or so, but I remember this particular moment as if it was just yesterday. I was in the aisle um, of the church that I was serving at in, in Sydney, St. John's Anglican Church, Kirribilli. I was about halfway down the aisle and 6.45 p.m. gathering, and this young man came up to me to speak to me. I'd never met him before. He was from another part of the world, and he said to me, I'm a Christian, I need help, can we talk? So we went somewhere private and he told me in that private place that he'd been traveling and that he'd ended up in Sydney. He was there for a few weeks. He felt pretty lonely actually, on his own in the big city of Sydney. And one day by accident, I don't know, or by design, he ended up in one of the kind of sleazier parts of the city of Sydney, where at the doors of various places were enticing women saying, come in here, come in. He wanted to go in, but he went back to where he was staying. The next day, he said, he returned to that part of Sydney, he saw a woman, really attractive, she seemed really kind, and she said to him, come in, I'll give you a good time. He went in, he paid his money, and then he left. He felt so, so guilty and even more lonely. I thought it would make me feel better, he said, but it didn't. It just made me feel more isolated and more alone. It didn't satisfy, yet I had this overpowering desire to go back, he said. He resisted the urge for a while and then he went back. And it became a compulsive behaviour. He said to me, I need help. I want to be free. Here in Revelation chapter 17, we're introduced to a prostitute. And she is enticing, she's seeking to entice every single one of us. And she's saying, come in. I'll show you a good time. If you have Revelation 17 open in front of you, in verse 5, she's identified as Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. 
We're continuing our series in the book of Revelation. We're up to week 10. Those of us who've been with in this series for the last couple of months or so will know that Revelation is a, a letter, a, a book written to uh, a bunch of Christians late in the first century AD to a whole lot of Christians living in what's called Asia in the Bible, but is really modern day Turkey for us who were experiencing widespread state-sponsored persecution for simply trusting and worshipping in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was really tough for these followers of Jesus in the first century. The Apostle John, uh, one of the original followers of Jesus, receives a vision, writes it down, shares it with the Christians and says basically, keep going, keep going, press on with Jesus. Revelation is a call, to use John's words, to patient endurance. Keep going. Press on with Jesus. And it was hard for them, right? Because no doubt other people around them in the cities that these Christians were living in were kind of laughing at them because these Christians are making sacrifices, making hard choices for someone they couldn't even see. Some of the people that were living in these times, these Christians were losing their lives in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm sure some of the Christians around were thinking, is this really worth it? And John says, yeah, keep going. Press on, keep trusting Jesus. And to bolster John's appeal, he says to the early early Christians, and by extension to us today, you need to see reality as it really is. You need to see reality as it really is and to to recognize those particular day-to-day temptations that you face are actually just small little hints of a massive cosmic battle that's going on. The real battle is not just within your heart, it's much bigger than that. There's a cosmic battle going on between good and evil in our world. This battle, by the way, has been described through the book of Revelation in, I'm sure if you've been around for a while, pretty dramatic kind of pictorial kind of ways. Um, We saw back in chapter 12, Mark Ballas opened up chapter 12, 13, 14 for us, where we met the red dragon who represents Satan. He's decisively defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus' death on the cross. So Satan's been hurled down out of heaven. He can't win. You see, there's a throne in heaven. Satan isn't on that throne. Jesus is on that throne. He's the king of kings. He's the lamb who was slain. And he sits securely on that throne. But Satan hasn't admitted defeat. It's a little bit like, I don't know, soccer, for example. Many of you, I've realized, at City Light Church North Adelaide, love the EPL. I'm concerned that some of you love that more than church and No, not Jesus. But you know, like a lot of people love the EPL. It's a bit, I don't know, I have no real idea about the EPL, right? But it's a little bit like, I don't know, Leicester City playing Fulham, right? Is that that a fair? Great? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, You know, and I don't know, there's a minute on the clock to go. Fulham, um, Leicester's kicked 50 goals, which pretty much would never happen, right? But 50 goals, and basically the game's lost. But Fulham are like hacking away, right? Playing right to the end. Fulham's defeated, you know, Leicester's like holding the cup, maybe not, I don't know, but you know, they're going at it. The Lamb, Jesus Christ, sits on the throne, he has won, but Satan will not admit 
defeat. Here on earth, therefore, Satan is trying to do his best to catch us, to distract us, to call us to follow him. He's enticing us to come back to him. And Satan uses allies. And the allies are described also in really pictorial terms. In chapter 13, you might remember, there are two beasts. Uh, The beast of anti-God authority, human powers organized against God. The other beast, in some ways the PR agent for the first beast, he's about anti-God ideology. And today we meet another ally of the beast. Chapter 17, Babylon the Great, who represents anti-God society. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's simply described as the world. And the name Babylon is an entirely appropriate name for the world because of biblical history. Um, So think way back to Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, where humanity said, let's build a, a city, let's build a great tower that reaches to the heavens that we might make a name for ourselves independent of the living God. The pride of humanity on full display. And that Tower of Babel was built on the place that would later become the international center of the vast empire of Babylon. You may remember that Babylon defeated Judah, little Judah, and took the people of Judah, God's people, into exile in Babylon. And there they had to make a choice, God's people. Will we live according to the standards of Babylon? You know that phrase, like, when in Rome, do as the Romans do? When in Babylon, do as the Babylonians do? Now, will we just sort of fit in? Or do we, remember, do we remember that we belong to God? He's rescued us. That Jerusalem is our true home. We live by the standards of God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. And isn't that the choice that we all face today? Jesus is returning. And when he comes, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks' time in Revelation 21... The new Jerusalem will be perfectly built on earth, the new creation, everything put right. But while we wait, we belong to Christ, we belong to the new Jerusalem, but we live in exile in this fallen world. And at times it's going to be hard. Babylon will say to us again and again, come with me, I'll show you a good time. As Christians in the first century, when they heard that enticing voice, as we hear that enticing voice today, John is saying, before you make the decision to go to Babylon or go with Babylon, look at the big picture. See things as they really are. See who's calling you. And so if you're a note taker, here's three kind of points for your notebook. Chapter 17, we'll see the true nature of Babylon. Chapter 18, John shows us the true destiny of Babylon. And once we've grasped those realities, I hope we'll see true wisdom, the key to patiently enduring as we wait for Jesus to come back. So firstly, chapter 17, the true nature of Babylon. Um, Open up chapter 17 if you have closed it of Revelation. At first glance, Babylon looks really attractive. Um, Verse 4. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand. Here's the original scarlet woman. She's got beautiful clothes, stunning jewelry, a cup in her hand that is dazzling, and she holds it out and says, drink. 
It tastes wonderful. It makes you feel good. And many drink of the cup that she offers. Verse 2, with her the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. The imagery used here speaks of sexual immorality and excessive alcohol. And it kind of fits because those are the two of the ways I think that sometimes we feel as though we're missing out on what the world has to offer. You know, meeting with a couple of Christian blokes a couple of weeks ago, um, we were reading John's gospel together and we got to John chapter 10 where Jesus says, I have come so that you may have life and have life to the full. And I asked him, what do you make of Jesus' offer? One of the guys said, I'm not sure I really believe that. One of the other guys said, yeah, same for me. What Babylon offers looks so much more attractive. It's often such a cost to go Jesus' way. One of them said, you know, the big cost for me is alcohol. I'm in a social group where we hang out and then we go out and a lot of people get drunk and I feel like I'm missing out. For the other guy, it was all about sex. He says, heaps of my friends are sleeping around and they say it's great. I'm not convinced that what Jesus offers is life in all of its fullness. Babylon is saying, come to me. I'll give you a good time. Of course, we shouldn't just limit this right to um, sexual immorality or drunkenness. Um, the imagery from the Old Testament, where the prophets use the language of adultery, they actually are describing spiritual unfaithfulness. Israel was God's own people, they were God's bride. And instead of remaining faithful to Him, they went after other gods and committed spiritual adultery. So Babylon's appeal is not simply come and do this. Babylon's appeal is actually an appeal to the heart. She's trying to persuade us that God cannot deliver on what is most good and fulfilling. That actually something else is the key to happiness and flourishing in the good life. It might be pleasure. Oh, you're missing out. But if you come with me, I'll give you a good time. Or you should live for profit. You should live for profit. That's the great idolatry, I think, of our age. Our world is saying the key to the good life is lots of money, plenty of possessions, and then you'll be satisfied. And huge sacrifices are made on the altar of mammon, money and profit. Where in order to gain those things, you know, marriages are ruined, families disrupted, health broken. Pleasure, prosperity, profit, or popularity. The key to the good life is making loads of friends and being accepted. And if you go all in for Jesus, well, that may challenge your popularity. Come this way. Jesus can't deliver the good life. Come with me. Drink my cup. She looks so attractive, but John is saying in chapter 17, before you drink the cup, do take a closer look. Look at the beast that the woman sits on. Verse 3, Then I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. Do you remember this guy? Do you remember this guy? This is the beast that Mark introduced us to in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation. Thanks, Mark. No. Um, Anti-God authority. And we see in the rest of the chapter of chapter 17, you have to go and read that on your own this afternoon or explore it a bit more deeply in your DG this week, 
you'll find this close relationship between the beast, anti-God authority, and Babylon, anti-God society. Verse 2, with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. The prostitute seduces even kings. If you like, the woman gives birth to the beast, worldly, anti-God ways of thinking that produces godless rulers. And then once in power, the beast becomes the woman's pimp, right? She sits on his back and he promotes her adulterous work. Anti-Christian governments giving free reign to anti-Christian worldviews and behaviour who even penalise those who refuse to go along with it. And there are certainly countries around the world where this is true today. And I would argue, I think we're beginning to see this even here. Certainly the case in Rome, certainly the case for first century believers who would have understood this activity as Rome. She sits on the beast, the beast with seven heads, which we read in chapter 17, verse 9. Those seven heads are seven hills. Well, Rome was built on seven hills. And you might be thinking, right, well, therefore, clearly this message belongs to the first century, right? It's only of historical interest because Rome has fallen. We've moved on, not so fast. In chapter 11, verse 8 of the book of Revelation, we're introduced to the worldly city, same as Babylon. But there the worldly city is identified as Sodom or even Egypt and even Jerusalem. And now it's Rome. It's really where atti- wherever attitudes of the world are believed, wherever worldly behaviour becomes the norm. You know, sure, Rome might have fallen, but Babylon is still out there. She's in league with the beast, who is a servant of the dragon. She looks so innocent. I'll give you a good time. But just a little closer look, the woman is sinister. She's riding the beast of anti-God authority and she hates God. The beast is ultimately a servant of the dragon and the dragon absolutely despises the living God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look closer, I don't know if you saw this, there's blood on this woman's lips. She's not giving life. No, she's taking life. Verse 6, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people. The blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. She can't cope with non-conformity. Those who say no to her way find themselves at times unpopular and even persecuted. Look at the beast she sits on. And before you side with her, also brothers and sisters, look at what's inside her cup. Don't be fooled by the golden exterior. She promises delicious nectar, but actually what's inside the cup is filth, right? Verse 4, she held a, a golden cup in her hand filled with the abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Drink it, she says, and you'll be satisfied. You know, prophet, that's what life's all about. And we begin to believe it that we're missing out unless we're driven by desire to gain and to earn. But just a moment's thought and a brief look inside the cup should show us the nonsense that that is. 
It doesn't deliver. And it's obvious as we look around at individuals in our society. The Romans had a saying, right? Money is like seawater. The more you drink it, the more thirsty you become. And those sacrifices made at the altar of mammon and prophet, it just doesn't deliver. If we just look at our society, a society driven by profit, what do we see? Massive debt, massive inequality, massive injustice, a pervading lack of generosity and lack of satisfaction and an absent contentment. We always want more. Look inside the cup. Or pleasure. That's the way to the good life. Oh, you can have your Christianity. Fine. But when there's a clash between what you really want to do and what God calls you to do, go with pleasure. And perhaps it's in the realm of sexual behavior more than any other that we feel the cost as God's people. Such an obvious difference between what God is saying in his word, that sex belongs in a married relationship for life between a man and a woman, and what the world is saying. And many of us will be thinking frequently, I think I'm missing out. Wouldn't life be better if I just drunk the cup? But again, look inside the cup. You know, what has our increasingly permissive kind of society delivered? I would suggest collapse of family life at huge cost to individuals and society. Economically, emotionally. And what's offered to individuals, so often it's isolation. I was reading an article last week about a group of young women who were in their mid-twenties, who wanted a partner, these are not yet Christian women, who wanted a partner, who just wanted to kind of settle down. They said they were finding it really difficult to find men who were willing to commit. The article was quite revealing, actually, and it quoted a psychologist, and she said this. We teach men that you're a man if you sleep with three women in one night. But I find I have men coming to my clinic who can't get aroused with their partner because they've watched pornography since the age of 11. She said, we're conditioning men into rapid sexuality and yet not teaching them how to relate. One young woman said, quote, dating isn't about meeting someone you like anymore. People are just addicted to the endorphin kick of meeting someone you find attractive. And of course, after a while, once you've been on the date with that person, the, the endorphin kind of drops, the kick drops, becomes less and less. When you get used to them, it's time to find someone else. It's hardly surprising that we're struggling to deliver commitment. And the result is lots of endorphins, but a real lack of contentment and a massive rise in isolation and loneliness. Doesn't deliver. Look inside the cup. Don't be fooled. Spot the true nature of Babylon. And then chapter 18, understand the true destiny of Babylon. 
the true destiny of Babylon. Chapter 18, um, another angel appears and with a mighty voice, verse 2, the angel shouts, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Fallen? What do you mean? I mean, that was unthinkable. When these words were first penned, Rome was absolutely secure, right? The book of Revelation was initially addressed to uh, Christians living in the late first century AD, living in modern day Turkey, um, which was right at the heart of the massive Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had been ruling and governing for about 100 years. The empire was enormous. Rome looked secure. It was never going to fall. And so, surely wisdom just involved fitting in with reality, right? But Rome fell in 455 AD. Vandals invaded. And of course, once Babylon fell, it keeps re-emerging. One of the big themes of the book of Revelation, right, is that Babylon may go, but it just emerges in a different kind of guise, basically. You can learn it from history. Evil is forever reinventing itself. There's a massive naivety among the rulers of our world, right? They should know better. I don't know. If we can just get rid of Saddam Hussein, then we'll get rid of evil in Iraq, right? Or, I don't know, just let's get rid of Assad, and then we'll have peace and tranquility in Syria. Or, I don't know, just get rid of bin Laden and then we'll bring an end to terrorism and jihad. Or right now, right, let's just get rid of Putin and we'll have peace in Europe. Evil done. Mm -mm. Babylon falls and re-emerges. Babylon falls and re-emerges. But, but, a time will come, amen, when Babylon will fall for good, never to rise again. Verse 7, in her heart she boasts, Babylon, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. You know, basically, I'll last forever. Therefore, verse 8, in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. God will not be mocked. The day is coming when proud Babylon, established in proud independence from God, will come crashing down, burnt to ashes, and those who'd invested in her, well, they'll be utterly devastated. Verse 9, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Verse 10, terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, woe! Woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. And when Babylon falls, the whole economic system will kind of collapse with us. And the end of verse 17, the sailors, they join in the chorus of lament. Right? These like, the, the sailors were like the venture capitalists of the day, right? These were the guys that would send out their ships, take massive risks for huge return. Well, they mourn, gone. The whole world system will collapse in an instant. What I find so sobering about these verses is that when I read them, 
They don't kind of fit the stereotype that I have in my mind of what Babylon looks like. I remember watching, I think it was the movie Alexander, which kind of follows the life of Alexander the Great, who was kind of in Babylon. And it was beautiful, right? There was this, I don't know, beautiful palms everywhere. It was lovely. There was goblets of fine wine and grapes like just hanging everywhere. So wherever you walked, you just grabbed a grape. It was just beautiful. Didn't really fit my stereotype of what I thought Babylon was kind of like from a biblical point of view, right? I mean, when I think of Babylon, I think of like, I don't know, vicious dictatorships, deplorable depravity, horrendous inequality. But here, right, here are the kings of the world and some merchants and some traders. It all looks pretty close to home. The city. Or Australia, the land of long hours and long weekends. End of verse 19. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. It's really sudden. Entirely just, verse 6. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion for her own cup, from her own cup. You know, her cup has brought so much misery, it's only just that she's made to drink her own poison. Entirely just and absolutely final. One day Babylon will fall, never to rise again. Verse 21, then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea. I quite like throwing stones into the sea. It's quite nice, pleasant experience. The kaplonk as it kind of hits the water. A stone of this size thrown into the sea, will never come floating back up to the surface again. It's gone for good. With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. And then comes that poignant refrain, never again, never again, never again, never again. There is so much good in our world that everything is corrupted by sin and one day sin will be no more. Never again to rise. If we drink the cup, remember its true nature, this Babylon, and remember its true destiny. And those two things, I believe, should lead us to true wisdom as we pivot to my third and final point, true wisdom. Across these chapters of Revelation, the angel, I think, speaks to us two particular messages, telling us the way of wisdom as we live here as God's people in exile in Babylon, certain of the future new creation to come. The first word of wisdom comes in Revelation 18, verse 4, where we're told, come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. Come out of her. And this is not speaking of a literal withdrawal. Um, many of you will know the book of Daniel and the character Daniel, the great man of God. He ended up as prime minister of Babylon. He didn't leave the city it's not like a, a literal, physical exodus from you know, the city we live in, as if we've got to establish you know, City Light Church, North Adelaide Monastery, 
and all just hang out there together. I mean, it'd be kind of fun for a while, right? But that's not what we're meant to do. We're not a holy huddle. It's not calling us to, you know, like physically separate from the world, but it's calling us to a physical, a spiritual separation, to resist Babylon's seductive charms. James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, writes a letter to Christians in the first century. Interestingly, he writes this in chapter four, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You can't have both. Come out of her. This is not in my notes, so this is dangerous, but Adele's not here, so I can say it, right? Um, um, a little bit earlier in the book of James, it's really interesting. I feel like I've shared this with a few people of recent times where it keeps coming up. James, the brother of Jesus, writing to Christians who are actually tempted to side with the rich, actually, um, and sort of dismiss the vulnerable, James actually says, I'm going to paraphrase him here, but at the end of chapter 1, he basically says, true religion is this, that, that pleases God, is to care for the widows and the orphans and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. To get a bit, you know, kind of Greeky and geeky, in the original language, that there's like in the, our English Bibles, we put an and between um, caring for widows and orphans and keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. So it's like, you know, look after widows and orphans or and, you know, another thing to do, keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In the original language, there's no and there, right? So it's basically as you care, as God's people, as we care for and love the widows and the orphans, by doing that, we are keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world. Does that make sense? So it's like as you love the vulnerable, you won't get sucked into pleasure, profit, and popularity. You'll just be like living and loving like God. That's not in my notes, right? But now find where I'm at. Um, it's not speaking of a, a literal withdrawal. It's speaking of a spiritual separation. Come out of her. Resist the world's values and lifestyles. Again, they say the key to the good life is pleasure and profit and popularity. And if God gets in the way of those things, well, then God really must come second. Fine, believe in God. Follow Jesus. But if there's a clash between Jesus and these great world values, well, the great world values have got to win. Well, the Lord says to his people, come out of her. Integrity and loyalty must come before pleasure and popularity. People must come before profit. And God the Father and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, must come before absolutely everything. And that may, actually that will be very costly. Babylon holds out her golden cup. And at times we drink deeply from it, don't we? God says, come out of her come out. For some of you, that means coming out for the first time. Saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And coming to the Lord Jesus with repentance and faith. Some of you have been coming here for weeks. Some of you have been coming here for months. And you've never done that. You need to do it. For the rest of us, 
Now, you might say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But it means repenting. Recognising that some of my attitudes and some of my actions, they need to change. Maybe taking the radical step of actually today talking to someone. I've messed up. I keep messing up. I need help to come out of her. Come out of her. There's another message, of course. Come out of her is the first one, but verse 20 is the second one. Rejoice over her, verse 20, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. It's the same sense again in chapter 19. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He's condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Come out of her is message one. Second message, rejoice over her. Now, you might hear that, right? And you say, that sounds a bit harsh. It sounds a bit vindictive. Can't be right to gloat over judgment. That's not what's going on. Rejoice, says the Lord, when Babylon falls, because when Babylon falls, salvation will come. The background, again, is the Old Testament. The people of Judah, they were trapped in Babylon. They wanted to go back to Jerusalem, but they could only go back to Jerusalem when Babylon fell. And God is absolutely committed to his kingdom project of seeing heaven realized on earth, his perfect, renewed creation. But that can only be built once Babylon is toppled and gone for good. And when that comes, praise the Lord. In Revelation 21, we'll look at this really soon. John looks up and sees coming out of heaven, the new Jerusalem coming down from God. And this holy city looks like a bride, beautifully dressed, fit for her husband. It's the imagery of chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride, God's people, has made herself ready. And perhaps you hear that this morning and you think, actually, that's not me. I've drunk the cup. I've been with the prostitute. I'm not fit to be his bride. Do you know the wonderful thing? When Jesus came to earth, he wasn't looking for perfect people. He wasn't looking for perfect people to marry. If he was looking for perfect people to marry, he'd be alone. (laughs) Now, what Jesus said was, Father... Please, may I take upon myself all of their sin, all of their filth, all of the things that they've done, that I might take the penalty for it so that I can say to them, come, trust in me, and I'll give you forgiveness and hope. You might have been in bed with Babylon. You may have drunk from her cup, but Jesus says, please drink from my cup. The night before Jesus died, what did he say? My cup is the cup of the new covenant. See, the prostitute takes life. Jesus gives life. Jesus gave his own blood that we would be forgiven. And he says to us all, keep on drinking. 
As we wrap up, let me ask you a question. What would have you said to that young man who came to me in the middle of that aisle in that little old church in Kirribilli over 10 years ago? Who said, I need help. I want to be free. What would have you said to him? I asked him, are you trusting in Jesus? He said, yes. I said, you know you've been forgiven for this sin. I said, if you want to break free, you've got to keep going back there. You've got to keep going back to Jesus. Remember, you are his bride. But also look forward to what is to come. I said to him, the key is delighting in Jesus. The Jesus who died for you and your groom who loves you more than you can ever know. I shared with him at the time that a friend of mine in that particular church, he was travelling a lot for his work and business. In the world he worked in, it was really normal for men on these travels and these trips to go off with other women overseas. And he said to me, this friend of mine, he says, really, it was really tempting. The key, he said, was not simply just to remind himself that it wasn't good to do that. The key, he said, was to remind himself of the wonder of his wife, to look at the ring on his finger, to delight in her, to be in regular contact with her. And he said that the more his relationship was good with his wife, the less he was inclined to look at anyone or anything else. And so it is with us. And that's what I said to this man. Delight in Jesus. The one who is and in whom is found the fullness of life here and forevermore. Shall we pray together? Let's pray. I'll give you a minute in silence uh, to consider how you need to respond. Whether for you today it's a moment of coming out from her for the first time. Recognising you've drunk deeply of her cup. And you know in your heart of hearts it's not fulfilling. Perhaps for some of us here as well it's a question of remembering we've messed up and we keep messing up. And that we need to keep Repenting, coming back to the Lord Jesus, delighting in him. I'll leave you just with a minute.
loving Heavenly Father, please help us in the midst of living in Babylon. Thank you for your word that helps us to see Babylon's true nature and destiny. In fellowship with your Son, by the mighty power of the Holy Spirit, help us all to come out from her and to keep living for you. Father, we recognise that we live in a world, in a country, in a city where particular views that we as followers of Jesus and Bible-believing Christians have do clash with the pervading culture around us. We do also recognise that we live in a time where it's going to become, I think, increasingly likely that people will not seek to understand what makes us tick. And we expect that'll cause all kinds of tension and distance. But Father, we pray that we would continue to love Jesus and to hold out the hope of the gospel. We pray that in the midst of any conflict, Father, you'd help us to lose well. And in losing well, point people to the Lord Jesus, we pray. So, Father, by your Spirit, help us to keep living for you. We pray this for our joy, for the good of our world, and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful, and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.